you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. Very excited today. We are going to be diving into financing options with private money lending, difference between private money, hard money, cash, and there's a bunch of moving pieces in between, right? How you can actually be able to fund these deals. There's not enough education, we believe, out there. So we, we brought on somebody that has worked in the industry for a while now, She's got a cool story as well. She's a chemistry professor, which is pretty wild. That's cool. That's unusual, right? And then also, you know, significant other military background. So they're both bringing income to the table. But what is something exciting and different, something that I really connect with is the simple fact of leveraging and utilizing business credit. And they're utilizing business credit to just get creative and become the bank, right? And start lending out to real estate investors like you and I in order to be able to complete your projects, to do bridge gap funding or full, you know, remodels on your project or fix and flips and so forth. So there's a lot of power behind this episode. Very excited to have Alex. What's going on? How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. I'm so excited that you're with us today. So for anybody out there that doesn't know exactly who you are, do you mind just diving into who you are, what you do, and like where you're from? Sure. I am not really from anywhere. I just call it the South now because as a military spouse for the last 20 years, we've moved 19 times in 20 years. So you're just kind of like, whatever, you know, home becomes more of a sensation than a destination at this point. But we are currently stationed in Hampton Roads up in the Virginia area. So Norfolk, Chesapeake, Hampton, that sort of region. We've been there for about two years. We bought a house right before COVID and we've then spent a whole lot of time in it since COVID. So I'm, I'm very happy we really like the house. Nice. And during that time, we were just, you know, through your network, everybody talks about, you know, need to network in real estate. And through the network of people, you know, because Hampton Roads, you can't throw a rock and not hit five people associated with the military. And I was just talking with my network and I had some friends, you know, that were in real estate, also active duty service members. And when COVID hit, it really shut down their their deal pipeline, their flow. And we just kind of stepped in and said, you know what? We always talked about getting into lending. Now seems to be the perfect opportunity because hard money lenders were closing, uh, conventional lending standards were being raised. And we just said, okay, let's step in and help. You know, it's mutually beneficial. Our goals are aligned. I'm an investor. You're an investor. We just happen to be on different sides of the table. Okay. I love that. So let's talk about at this point, you guys just purchased a property. You started still having some cash saved up and then you started leveraging business credit in order to get a bunch of funds together. And then you saw some of your friends struggling with actually being able to get the funding needed to close on on their project. So you ended up stepping in and becoming the private money lender, right? Absolutely. I love it. So what does that look like? Like, how are you protecting yourself and why become the lender? Why become the bank, right? 
So I'll start with the latter first. So we had done some fix and flips at various duty stations. We had rental property at various duty stations. And again, you know, just because that's usually what's presented to new investors for real estate, you know, you're either doing the HGTV model or you're doing a burr. And we attempted both of those, but never really gave it any kind of thought as to what our strengths were, what our weaknesses were, what actually kind of what our overall goals were. Everybody's just like, get into real estate, and, you know, that starts your financial journey. And we quickly found out that, you know, we don't like babysitting people. We, we don't have children. That's very intentional. And anybody who's ever had a rental or even fix and flip, you know, you basically become a professional babysitter to adults. And we were continuously let down um, when we had expectations that adults would act like adults and it just didn't happen. So the happiest day we ever had as a landlord is the day we sold our property. And we took a little hiatus from real estate because we were literally bouncing all over the country. We were staying places, you know, in a house, maybe three months, maybe six months, you know, the longest before we'd lived in Hampton Roads, we'd been stationed anywhere. It was 22 months and we moved, you know, three times in that 22 months within the same region. So it was just really, you know, not really feasible. This was kind of back before, you know, virtual wholesaling and, you know, building a boots on the ground team from a distance, you know, was kind of not really an option for us. So once we finally settled down, we said, you know, let's get back into real estate. And we were kind of contemplating Hampton Roads is not really a, a 1% market for the most part. You're really, really lucky if you can find a rental deal that hits the 1% rule. And we were also really, again, hesitant to jump back into that landlord pool again, because that wasn't something we enjoyed. And then COVID just kind of offered us this opportunity and said, here's a way to have passive income. Here's a way to help other people. And you're still investing in real estate. So we said, all right, let's move forward with this. And we hired an attorney. I really, really advocate getting the legal paperwork done by a professional. Don't go out there and, you know, Yes. Do not go out there and just, you know, get some template that you bought off offline or, you know, hey, your buddy uses this and that seemed to work that, you know, fine. Just spend the money up front to get it professionally done. So we hired an attorney to form the LLC, obviously, with our input for how we wanted it structured and rules and things like that. We had an attorney draw up kind of a template, you know, in Virginia, they're called deed of trusts. And that's actually what gets recorded down at the courthouse. So you have a secured lien on the property. Um, and we had uh, an attorney, again, draw up a promissory note that the, the borrowers are signing at the closing table. And realistically, that wasn't but a couple thousand dollars to have done, to have basically all our template stuff, you know, done and ready, our LLC established. We went and established a bank account. And that was all done literally in a matter of a week. So, yeah. you know, we were very adamant we wanted this done correctly from the beginning. It's so, so good. I see so many people, and I'm sure you do as well, that try cutting corners in the beginning. Maybe they are a little tight on cash or whatever it may be, but that is like the foundation, right? You do not want to cut yes. on your legal documents, especially if you plan on actually scaling this and becoming like, like doing this as a full-time gig or whatever it may be. If you plan on doing any more than one or two or, or whatever it is, um, you know, you should always spend the money upfront on those legal documents because that's what's going to protect you. Like it's made for your protection in case, you know, all the- Something happens. Yeah, in case the, <laughs> the rainbow disappears and it turns into, you know, a, a crazy storm, right? So it's awesome that you, you guys were smart enough to not cut corners there. And then, like you said, it only took about a week or so and it was a couple thousand bucks well worth it because now you have the template that you can just, you know, change a couple things here and there as you move forward and you're good to go. 
I love it. Absolutely. And we wanted that track record because at some point in the future, if we wanted to do some sort of fundraising or broker funds or accept funds, we wanted that credibility on paper with future investors to say, look, this is what we've been doing for X amount of time. Here's our legal documents that were drawn up by an attorney. You know, we're not some fly by night kind of thing. We wanted that credibility from the very get go. I love it. So let's talk about the business credit, right? You guys set up the LLC properly. You got a business bank account. And then, you know, how did you go about getting some business credit? And what did that look like? How was the process? So we opened a bank account. We actually shopped around to a couple different community local banks, credit unions actually in our area, just talking, you know, seeing what their parameters were, you know, what kind of deals they had. Did they have any sort of promotional things? You know, what were their minimums and maximums for accounts and things like that? So we actually settled on one of our local credit unions, you know, coincidentally it was right down the street from our new home. And we got to really know the, the branch manager there, um, just conversing with her, asking her questions. And I started asking about loan products. I said, hey, you know, this is what we're looking to do. This is how much we're looking to invest. You know, what is the process for getting some sort of business line of credit established? And she actually initially told us that it would require two years of tax returns for that company. And I said, okay, you know, that's great. That's good information for the back burner. Let's build that track record. And I kind of didn't really think much about it because, you know, I was going, okay, we're going to establish our two years. But then after we had done a couple deals and I had a request for a fairly large loan, and I went back to her and I said, look, you know, here's the track record. I provided a bunch of documentation showing her, you know, the deed of trust that were recorded, the satisfaction of mortgage that were recorded after the loan's been paid off. And I was like, this is what we're doing. You know, we have a pretty strong track record because our loans are very short because we're only fixing, we're only funding fix and flips right now. And I went back to her and I said, I know you told me two years, but you know, here's a couple that have been through an entire deal cycle. You know, here's the funds we're willing to kind of put up. And I said, could, is there any way we could start with, say, a secured line of credit? So that way, if something goes wrong, you know, you have the money in the bank account. And she said, yeah, let me talk with the people higher up and see what they say. And they don't conventionally do that in under two years. And, you know, she came back a couple days later and said, you know, they're willing to do a secured line of credit for a certain period of time. And however long that happens to be, you know, we can reassess at the end of that. And I was like, perfect. That gets me in the door. That gets me building a relationship with that credit union. Again, a couple months, you know, using that secured line of credit. And, you know, I went back and I said, look, you know, we now have, you know, these other loans that are out. We have this income that's coming in. Is there any way I can get this extended or turned into an unsecured line of credit so I can have access to my funds plus, you know, that loan amount? And she, you know, again, went back to her higher ups and she's like, okay, yeah, this is what we're willing to do. We're willing to extend as an unsecured line of credit and you can basically, you know, have your funds back because it's no longer collateral for their business loan. So I would really say it really just happens to be, you know, talking to the right people, the people that can make the decisions, you know, that have the power to make the decisions and being prepared with documentation to prove your case, not just walking and going, I'm a real estate investor, I would like a yeah. loan. You know, we, we had a business plan, we, we yeah. had a track record at that point. And, you know, we didn't say take it or leave it. We said, this is what we would like to do. They weren't able to do that at that time, but they came back with something that was kind of halfway in the middle. And we said, all right, you know what? That's a stepping stone. Let's build this relationship and let's go. I love that. You mentioned a few different things right there. I mean, first off, to kind of backtrack on what you're just speaking of, you know, it's very important to be analytical when it comes down to this type of platform, like have all your ducks in a row, make sure you have the paperwork in place 
and you can prove to them because it's almost going to be like a mini court case, right? Like you need to provide the evidence showing that you're a good bet, right? Because they're taking the risk with you. So you need to minimize the risk on their scale so that they feel comfortable and they know that you're a good bet to, to place their money with, right? Absolutely. Also, mentioned a couple things, small local credit union, you know, right down the street and you guys shop yes. around to a few. That's really the key factor. You know, you're not going to get it from the big, huge companies like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase. It typically ends up working out. You can get approved from them, but it's going to be higher rates. And also you're going to get more of a, it's going to be less basically, right? You can get bigger lines through the local unions and they will bend over backwards to make it work out well for you. As long as you create a smart offer, right? Like you went in and said, Hey, if we could set up something that maybe a secured line, then that would do well for us. And then over time, you know, we can reconsider again. So, and then you also mentioned the relationship with the manager. Like so many people think that it's just setting up that bank account and then, you know, that's it. And, uh, you know, maybe I can show them documents in six months from now, but if they don't know you and they don't see you and talk to you on a regular basis, get to know your character they need that personal relationship. So having the connection with the manager, building that and making sure that they're super in your favor. And it's kind of like that family connection, right? That they're going to do whatever they can possible to make it work out well for you. Right. And the funny thing with that relationship component is I've actually never met her in person because of COVID. They weren't allowing people in the bank. So all of this was developed through email and through phone calls. So I've never actually even met her in person and we've managed to develop that relationship. Love it. So how much did they start you off with? And then what does that look like now currently? They started off as a secured line with $50,000 and then they then moved and unsecured it and then added in another $100,000 as an unsecured line of credit. And it's kind of in the form of obviously it's a line of credit. So we just get charged interest on what we use. So yeah. we, if we don't have a deal out there rolling, we're not getting charged interest for that. Love it. So How much interest are they typically charging you guys currently? When it was secured, it was actually a little bit higher, which was funny. So the secured secured line of credit was about, I think, 12%, which obviously at that point, you know, we weren't looking to kind of bank on the spread. We were banking on the relationship building. So after that, you know, we got an unsecured line of credit. The unsecured line of credit, I believe, is at eight and a half. And that's funny because some people out there would have the negative mindset behind it and be like, oh, well, the numbers don't work. I can't, it doesn't make sense for us. Okay, well, then there goes that relationship because how long did it take for you to build up from secured to unsecured? Actually, realistically, very short period of time. We started having this conversation with her in March, right when, you know, the world kind of started shutting down. And then we got an unsecured line of credit at the beginning of June. So about three months. Unbelievable. Yeah, I love it. And you were already going to be using, you know, the 50K anyway. So might as well secure it, build a relationship for a couple months, which is yes. the end of the world. And then you get, they unsecure it. So you get your money back. Plus they put another 100K on top of that. Yes, it was great. I was so happy. I was actually really surprised. I was really expecting the unsecured line to be far more expensive, but it actually got cheaper. I love it. And this is something that you can negotiate as well in the future. As yes. you know, I mean, this is brand new relationship, right? So you guys are maybe six months into it or so. And 
They've already extended it 150K. I'm sure with the track record, as it keeps continuing, you'll be able to get even more extended, which is amazing. And also you can negotiate that interest rate lower. I mean, you're not even in the first full year of it. Plus, you yeah, know, I was don't have your two years of tax returns yet, right? I know. <laughs> I was like, what happened to that requirement? <laughs> yeah. Which is awesome because you didn't give up. And that's the most important thing. So many people out there just give up and can't, you know, they stop thinking, well, how can I make this work? And I love how you, whatever they gave you, you just got creative with that back and stayed persistent, building the relationship. I mean, it's, it's really a matter of just not accepting no. You're like, okay, if this doesn't work, what can we do to make it work? You know, it's not some matter of no, close the door. It's like, okay, we got to find some way to compromise and make it work. Just tell me how. Yes, I love it. And it's such a big key factor. You know, it's so, so crucial. That's how all successful people really make it. It's just not accepting no. And try and figure out, okay, well, what will it take, right, to make this a win-win situation? So yes, I love absolutely. That. I mean, that's the mindset you have to walk in with. Like, you know, they might say no, but okay, what happens if they say no? That means you have another opportunity to learn and grow. Yeah, no sweat off my back. Yeah, totally cool. I love that. Well, kudos to you for actually like pushing through, making it a win-win situation, and so early in the game, so like early in the season for business credit. I mean, the list goes on. Literally. Once you set up your foundation properly, and I'm sure, you know, you guys have your LLC. Did you get a Dunn's number? And have you put any trade lines on there yet? We have not started that process yet. Like I said, we're brand new to this. So our kind of big factor was establishing a track record and some credibility to be able to start working with our community bank. And now that we've kind of done that, our next step will be to go and start working on building some additional business credit, you know, with other vendors outside of this community bank. Yeah, because once you get a ton of trade lines on there and really start building up the business credit to make it look amazing, then you're going to be able to go to all the other local banks as well. And the secret sauce behind it is that that one bank that's working with you now, the simple fact is you can actually go around to dozens upon, there's hundreds of banks out there that you can do the exact same thing in your local own backyard. And that's the power. Like this is a brand new LLC, brand new everything. Haven't even necessarily set up the true foundation of like what we call when it comes down to business credit. And we show people how to be able to get to a million dollars in business credit unsecured within one year. This is something that you're well on track for and you haven't even like, you just dove in right away. So we just figure it out as we go. I mean, that's always been kind of my, my, you know, ready, aim, fire and just go and we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I'm so excited for you. It just like gets my heart going. I'm like, yes, that's so cool. (laughs) So exciting for you guys. And let's just be honest, like most real estate investors, as they get started in comparison to like, if you really make a career out of this and do it for the long run, nine times out of 10, all real estate investors, like if you're doing fix and flip, wholesaling, rentals, whatever it may be, the end game, nine times out of 10, no exaggeration, is always turning around and being the bank at the end of the day. And if you can skip all the chaos in between, all the headaches in between and become the bank up front, like realize the true power of being the bank, then like what you guys have done, I mean, that's super powerful. It saves a lot of headache and 
one day, you know, knock on wood, like hopefully nothing ever goes wrong, but playing the numbers game, like maybe one day there's going to be a property that doesn't work out well, but because you're secured, you're protected, you might become a real hands-on real estate investor really quickly. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And, And even if we think, even if we do, we still have that network of people, you know, even other borrowers that we've worked with and say, hey, we're getting this property back. We really have no interest in fixing and flipping or being a landlord or whatever. Do you want this? Here's what the mortgage is. Here's what we owe on it. Do you want to take it over? Yeah, I love that. That's so exciting. Cool. So tell me, tell me more about the projects that you have funded. If you don't mind diving into the numbers, what it looks like, just to give some people the motivation and understanding like from beginning to end, afterwards, we could talk about this beginning to end, how the process was. So other you know, the listeners can actually potentially do this themselves. Absolutely. So one of the first deals that we funded was actually with an active duty service member. He's a Navy officer stationed in Norfolk on one of the ships. And he was taking a property subject to, and he and his partner just needed some additional funds for rehab. The place ended up selling, it actually just closed last week, ended up selling for 260. I believe they took over the first mortgage at 104. So they, they bought it with a ton of equity. So when they approached me to do some gap funding, and then obviously in that case, we'd be in the second lien position. I felt pretty secure in the borrower. You know, he's an active duty service member. He's got top secret clearance. So obviously they can't get into financial trouble without jeopardizing their job. He was very experienced as a fix and flip in the area. He had some rentals. So he had that experience and that credibility behind him. And then one of the things that I do that I find is kind of unique when I'm pr- talking to prospective borrowers is I ask for three professional references. So I want to talk to three people who have done business with you in real estate. And that's not even the key, you know, because obviously people are going to give you names and numbers of people that are going to give them this shining, you know, example. Yes, this is a great investor. So what I do then, the next step is after a conversation with them, I ask them for references that about this original borrower. So I want to talk to the kind of that secondary network that maybe they didn't, the original borrower didn't kind of cough up. And I will talk to that second crowd of people and say, you know, what has your experience been in real estate with this individual? Because as I'm sure you're aware, anybody that's involved in real estate, it starts to feel like everybody's in real estate. But then once you're actually in it, you kind of run into the same people over and over (laughs) and you know, it's kind of funny. So if you end up with a bad reputation where, you know, you've got some really angry past partners, you've defaulted on loans, you know, you have a track record of not closing deals. That's going to come out when you start talking to other people within the real estate community. So that's a lot of how I do my due diligence on borrowers just at the very beginning. And so in that particular case, you know, everything checked out, all the references checked out, he had a lot of equity in other properties. You know, he had some funds and reserves, liquid reserves. So I felt pretty confident even being in the second lien position, you know, this deal was going to close and worst case scenario, the property still had a ton of equity, even for the amount we loaned. We ended up loaning $40,000. The house needed a new kitchen. So it got new kitchen cabinets. They kind of reorganized how the kitchen was set up. They put new flooring in the entire place and they actually added a bathroom. So it was a three, one, they turned it into a three, two which was pretty standard for the area. And the, the home, you know, is kind of in the, I like to loan, especially right now, I like to loan within about 10% of the median household price for that zip code. And this house kind of fit right in there, you know, is the typical square footage. It was, you know, the three bedroom, two bathroom ranch, you know, built in the seventies, what flippers absolutely love. Good school district, really close to shopping. 
So I felt, okay, you know what? The second this place hits the market, the market's so hot right now. It was yeah. going to be hitting right at the beginning of PCS season, which is the big moving season for the military. And yep. this was in the price range for a lot of military members. And it actually, you know, once it hit the market, it actually sold very quickly or got under contract very quickly. So it went to closing with the retail buyers. So the retail buyers, their new loan paid off the first mortgage from the original seller and then paid off the second lien position that we had on the property. And then the investor then obviously walked away from closing with the difference between the closing costs and the liens on the property. Nice. So going back a second, you mentioned, just to reiterate, you said median household that's selling in the area or just Okay. That's selling in the area, median household price for the comps. You're going 10% underneath. That's what you like to stay with? I like to stay within about 10%. So maybe 10% above, 10% below. Um, Just because Hampton Roads is, there's a lot of like waterfront property, for example, that can be kind of interspersed with inland property. So it kind of throws the values. It's kind of hard to sometimes get some true accurate comps if you're just looking from a big perspective. And we have a lot of federal jobs here. And this is the largest military installation on the East Coast is here. So you have a big population of people that you know their income. You know what they're, you know, if they're an E5, they're making this every month, they're getting this in BAH. If they're an O5, they're making this every month, they're getting this in BAH. So you want to kind of make sure that if you're trying to retail a property, your big market here at least is going to be either a government contractor or someone in the military. So you want to make sure that it's an area that those particular demographics are going to want to live in and that they can actually afford to buy the place. Um, And given what's going on with COVID and everybody talks about a potential downturn, you know, I'm focusing on what do the buyers want because I'm getting paid basically by the buyers. Yes, you know, the borrowers giving me interest payments or, you know, whatever it happens to be, but ultimately my return of capital is going to be coming from a retail buyer. So I want a loan on projects that retail buyers are going to have in high demand. That makes so much sense. It really does. I mean, it's brilliant. So when it comes down to the time frame, what did that look like? On that uh, actually, that one was only out for uh, about 60 days, I believe. So by the time the borrower you know, contacted me and we got the funding for the deal, he had the closing and then he does the rehab, the repair. He already has a general contractor that he just kind of keeps rolling from project to project to project. So he didn't have the you know, usual problem of trying to find a reliable contractor. He'd already kind of worked through that process. So basically the day it closed, he had a dumpster in the driveway the next morning and the contractor went to work. It was only under rehab for about three weeks. They threw it on the market and then it was off market within a couple of days under contract. And then about 30 days later, they went to closing. The retail buyer bought the property. They totally, totally in the deal, maybe about 60 days. Okay. I love that. And then, so very quick turnaround. So when it comes to his profit, do you know the investor's profit? Do you know roughly what that was? Roughly, I didn't see the HUD one. I haven't seen the HUD one yet for that one because it actually closed last Friday. But my guess is they were into it for maybe about 150 with you know holding costs and closing costs. I don't know if they did any sort of closing costs for seller concessions, um, you know, for the buyer. But I would say they ended up selling for 265. Is what the listing price was. That's what they ended up selling it for. So you're figuring roughly about $100,000, you know, between it was two partners. So $100,000 clearance, if I remember the numbers correctly. Um, And in that case, that particular borrower had none of his own funds tied up in the deal. 
So yeah. they literally took a project subject to, they li- okay, I take it back. They paid the seller $750 to walk away from the property because that's what the seller wanted was $750. So they paid $750 bucks walking away. To, yeah, just to walk away. And other than that, they have none of their other, other cash involved in this deal. You know, I came in as an investor, as yep. a private lender and supplied that funding for them, but that doesn't necessarily mean they had no fun. No, they didn't have money. That's the kind of key distinction I like people to know. Yeah. That yes, the gurus go out there and they say, you can invest in real estate with none of your own money. And that's great. Yeah. And it's wonderful. But that doesn't mean you do it with no money. So if you were a borrower that didn't have equity, that didn't have liquid reserve somewhere, then I'm not funding that deal because that's too high risk for me personally. Yeah, that's a great topic right there because a lot of people ask me, you know, we teach business credit, personal credit as well. We have very big lines of credit ourselves. So obviously like people know we're doing this in the game. So people ask us like, well, why are you raising private money or hard money on some of your deals? Well, first off, we're doing, you know, in San Diego, our, our last project was a fourplex. It was 1.25 million. But more importantly, I like to build the relationships just like you because it takes care of us. And then God forbid, if anything ever went south, I'm always going to do right by my investors and make sure that they're covered. So yeah, we have our hard money and then we have, I mean, at 8.5% as well. So and then our investors' private money at typically 8% as well. So, you know, it's good numbers. It's not like breaking the bank for us. Plus, we're building relationships. I'd rather hook up my neighbor across the street instead of, you know, and help him out, show him the possibilities of real estate, actually inspiring him as well. He's, he's getting uh, several of his own properties now, which is awesome, and doing it the same exact way by raising OPM, other people's money, and then still having the funds just in case as backup which is awesome. Yes. I mean, it's really about building. I try to tell people like I'm an investor the same way you're an investor. We're just on the opposite sides of the table, but our goals are still aligned. We, we both want the property to be fixed up. We both want the property to sell. You know, we both want some equity in the deal because equity is how he's getting paid and equity is security for me. So as opposed to being a landlord, especially now with the big like eviction moratoriums and rent cancellation protests and things like that, your alignment of goals tends not to be there because they want to pay as little as possible. You want them to pay as much as possible. You know, they want this big, beautiful garden tub installed and you're like, it's a seed neighborhood. I'm not installing a garden tub. You know, those, those priorities and goals don't tend to be very aligned in the landlord tenant, you know, realm. Whereas when you have two investors working on the same deal, even though they're on opposite sides of the table, you're still working together for the same goals. And that's what I really like about private lending. Yes. Yeah, that's so powerful. Creating a true win-win situation. I really, like, I'm super inspired and love how this investor, obviously, what he brought to the table was an amazing deal. And he obviously completed the project. He had the team in place to be able to knock it out within 60 days, which is awesome. But he walked away with, you know, no money out of his pocket, pretty much, and utilized other people within his network, knocked it out in 60 days and walked away with 100K, you know, roughly, give or take. So, I think that is like, you know, that's the, the bee's knees right there. That's powerful. But if you don't mind, what were the profits on your end as far as like, what, how did you guys structure that? So for, since the loan terms are so short, you know, it's, yeah. it's a little difficult to go and say, okay, 12% APR because they might only have it for one or two months. Yeah. And especially if we're doing gap funding, the loan amounts are so small that, you know, our gap funds generally are under $50,000 when we're coming in as gap funding. 
or at least have been so far. So we actually do just a flat interest rate. So on that particular deal, we did 10% flat and we actually let him defer payments since again, the loan term so short, he actually deferred interest payments and rolled it into his payoff when he went to the second closing for the retail buyer. So it really was other than the 750 to you know pay the original seller, that's the only funds he had out of pocket because we just, again, he presented his numbers, what he was looking for. I presented what my thoughts were, what I was looking for. And that's what we agreed upon and said, okay, you know what, let's do 10% flat and then you can pay out of the second closing. And he was very happy with that. Love it. So basically just a balloon payment all at the end. He got the money up front at closing, 40,000 basically for the rehab. He knocked it out in 60 days. And now on the back end closing, that's when everybody gets paid out and you guys walked away with a hefty flat chunk, which is awesome in just 60 days, you know, way to put the money to work. I love it. Exactly. It's been great. And then especially like you mentioned with the trade lines, even if they were charging me, you know, as a secured at 12%, it's 12% annually, where if I can loan out those funds and I had that for a longer period of time, if I did 12% flat for three months, if I roll that over three or four times in the year, I'm still getting a great spread on my cash. Yes, that's a great clarification. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Just in case if this is like the first time you guys are hearing these numbers, annualized, you know, if it's 12% annualized, that's basically 1% each month. So as you know, it, it's not getting judged on like the flat time frame, the flat fee, that, that's, a, that's a flat price for whatever time frame that is that you guys agree upon. But when it's annualized, which that's how we do a lot of our loans, it's very natural in the game, I guess you would say. That's when it comes down to if it's 12% and you only hang on to it for six months, you actually only pay 6% at the end of the day, which you know can be nice. But when it's short time frames, that's when it's super crucial to be creative and make sure that you get the flat fee. And we've done that as well with our business credit and personal credit. We've put out hard money lending out there with some of our investor friends and we'll charge a hefty price for the gap funding, but it's a flat fee because we know that it's only going to be for a short time frame. So we can put our credit to work, which is awesome. Super, super powerful. So let's talk about this, another deal, if you don't mind, and then we'll start wrapping it up. Sure. So one of the deals that we funded is a first lien position. It's in a really steady C-class neighborhood. They thought they were going to do a fix and flip, but after some conversations, they decided to go with their other exit strategy and actually do it as a buy and hold. And even though we don't necessarily usually fund buy and hold, the time frame was so short that it essentially had the same time frame as a fix and flip. So we said, okay, you know what, let's, we'll fund on this. Again, the borrower profile was kind of the key deciding factor. It was another active duty service member. They had lived in the area. They were actually retiring in this area. So they'd done their 22 years in the military. They're going to be, they're actually getting out next year. So, you know, I knew they had that steady income. They had a ton of liquid assets between like their TSP, some 401k stuff that their spouse had. So they had a ton they probably could have bought this place for cash on, you know, just themselves. So I felt really comfortable with that particular borrower. So in that one, we were in the first lien position. The property was probably going to ARV around, I think about 180, you know, conservatively, you know, they supplied a CMA, you know, which was a little higher, but I just think, you know, conservatively with COVID and it's going to be a rental market about 180. So we actually came in at about 50% of that is what we ended up loaning for our first lien position. And 
again, we rolled all the interest costs into the payoff. So when they go to do their refinance in this case, instead of a sale, they're going to refinance it and we'll get our interest payments. And again, for that one, we're actually doing a 12% flat because they're having it a little bit longer than the first deal that I mentioned. So they wanted six months and I said, okay, that's fine. Um, The property actually didn't need a whole lot of rehab. They just happened to get a killer deal on it for the purchase price. So they're just doing some updating, a little bit of remodeling. They're actually turning it into a duplex. It just happened to kind of have a floor plan where that worked out quite nicely. So they they bought it as a single family home. It was vacant at the time. They just did a little bit of remodeling, a little bit of floor plan change around that didn't require any sort of structural you know, changes. Basically, they just had to add a doorway and build another set of stairs and they had two units. So they're actually getting to cash flow really, really well, which was another kind of, you know, selling point to me because a single family home, it was only going to go as for maybe a thousand, eleven hundred dollars a month in this particular neighborhood. Whereas if it's a duplex, it was going to be two, two ones. So each one of those was going to get maybe seven fifty, eight hundred dollars So you've, you know, got a significant bump to cash flow, which yeah. even if we had to extend the loan because they couldn't refinance, you know, fully rented, they were well above what the payment was going to be to me. So I felt pretty strong on that. So they've actually in the process of refinancing and that one should actually be closing sometime next week. So we'll be getting our cash out of that. And it's actually a couple months ahead of schedule. So that one, again, you know, it's, it's experience. They got on the ball. You know, the big mistake I see a lot of investors make, and I personally will not loan to people that do this, is they'll have like a full-time job and they have a wife and a kids and the whole nine yards. And then they're just going to go and bang out this rehab on the weekends and nights. And I'm like, you're just just spending money at this point because you have high holding costs. You have property taxes, you have insurance, you have a loan out on this and you might as well just pay a contractor, get it done in two or three weeks and then move on. Pay the professionals and keep it moving. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. A lot of people, some random people, you know, do that type of stuff and it's trying to cut the corners and knock it out on the weekends. It takes so much longer. It's going to be a, you know, six months on, on the basic, you know, type of yes. remodels up to a year plus, right? Eight trips a day to Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. Come on now. That's just, it's not worth it. Well, I love that. So do you have any clauses in there that if, you know, if they're not able to do a cash out refi or cash you out, like, are you willing to work with people, I guess, for additional fees, stuff like that, as long as there's communication, transparency? Yes. So I'm very clear about my expectations about communication at the very beginning. And so, so far, it hasn't been a problem because yes. I end up, like I mentioned, you're building that relationship with them. So I end up talking to them about all sorts of other things that aren't real estate related. So we oftentimes are, are speaking daily, if not a couple times a week. But I was very clear with my expectations. You know, I want an update while it's in the rehab phase. I want an update in pictures once a week. Um, I want an update on what's going on in the following week. You know, have kitchen cabinets been ordered? Just kind of keep me updated. And then once it hits the market, is it under contract? And then, you know, how is it under contract? Is it a VA, FHA, conventional financing? Just because that can kind of make a difference in timeline for closing. And then where is it closing? Because obviously I have to send my wiring instructions and payoff letter and all that to whatever closing company is going to be doing the closing for the retail buyer. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's so far, the communication has not been a problem. You know, people are, are more than happy to, to involve me because a lot of their marketing as investors is that transparency. You know, they're putting on their Facebook pages for their company, here's the newest rehab that I got and I got private money and here's the numbers because they themselves are also trying to establish a track record or add to their track record. 
So transparency is a big thing for me, you know, just being able to say, you know, if something goes wrong, they admit to it. You know, if they aren't that victim mentality, oh, the market changed on me and I don't know what to do. Um, oh my so gosh. Especially to kind of compensate for COVID, what we've been doing is all of our loans have an automatic three month extension. And we just do a half percent of the loan amount for as a monthly payment for that three month extension. So if you have it for three months, you have a three month extension and it's still going to be the flat fee. And then you start making some monthly payments. And if it ends up going beyond that, you know, we can always renegotiate because again, our goals are aligned. We both want the same thing. So trying to make it harder on your borrower is not in your best interest. No, and you don't want people to like clam up and and, uh, just try to hide away from it because some people naturally do that. And then the resentment starts building up, frustration, all all the above. So I love how you work with the lenders. Obviously, there's the communication transparency and overall making sure that they are keeping you updated on a weekly basis is very crucial. Are you guys doing any assignment of rents as well? Like, God forbid, if like, do you put that in your contracts, assignment of rents, if if you get a property and it's not paid? We do not do that because traditionally we are funding just fix and flips right now. So there's sure. usually not tenants in the picture, yep. but it's something we have looked at in the future. If, you know, once we kind of get a better sense of the macroeconomic environment, we feel ready to loan on something that's going to be intentionally going to be a rental opportunity. That's something that we are pursuing as yeah. a possibility. We've talked to our attorney about that. Something we have also talked to our attorney about is doing something like a pocket deed. So if we are in the first lien position, the closing, when the when our borrower goes to buy the property, they will actually have two deeds. So they'll get the deed from the seller to take title to the property. And then they'll actually sign another deed that would title over the property to our company, you know, if for some reason they don't stick to the conditions of the promissory note. So for example, you know, if they miss three interest payments or they just completely go off the grid and there's been no communication at all for a set period of time, we can then contact the attorney and say, you know what, file that pocket deed and then we can work on getting possession of the property once we have official title to it. And that's obviously going to be only working in a first lien position because if you're in the second lien position, you know, you don't necessarily have the right to do that unless you're going through the entire foreclosure process and taking over the first mortgage and a whole mess there. So when you're doing gap funding, for example, it tends to be about 80% about the borrower and 20% about the property. And when you're in the first lien position, it's kind of flipped. It's 80% about the property and 20% about the borrower. So it really just depends on you know, which lien position you're in and what you're doing as to what kind of clauses you want to include in your contract, in your deed of trust, in your promissory note. Because again, it's really going to be determined on what the exit strategy is, you know, the experience of the borrower, you know, that particular property, you know, is it going to be even an income producing property? So the first deal I mentioned that's in a really high retail area, really good school district, while all those things are great, the rent wasn't going to cover the mortgage payment. Like it's just, the, it's just, that's the way the market is. So even if he managed to say it couldn't sell, if he had to get a tenant in there, it's still going to be in a position where it's not cash flowing. So he's going to have to be bringing, you know, cash to the table basically every single month to make those mortgage payments. So that's a really strong consideration is what is their exit strategy, you know, and is that feasible? And that's really, you know, where we've been able, I'm a big fan of just keeping things simple I don't necessarily need a 40 page contract. If I can scale it down to that particular bar or that particular property, I feel like that makes everybody a little more comfortable with it. I just, 
you know, you really have to have some trust. You got to hit the I believe button at some point and say, I trust this person enough to actually do what they're going to do. Yeah, that's so good. So you mentioned as far as like the buyer, they sign a deed over to you and then you guys just keep it as a, you know, in the pocket basically on until it's needed, worst case scenario. There's no way to actually file that up front, correct? No, because if we filed it up front, it would actually transfer title from the borrower to us. Sure. So when they go to sell the property, it then looks like we are selling it. And obviously we don't want to get hit with capital gains, taxes and all of that. And since, especially since we wouldn't be getting any of the upside because we're the lender. So they will keep title to the property as long as the, you know, the mortgage is being paid or, you know, the agreement is being stuck to that we, that everybody signed on the dotted line for. Wow. This is powerful. Alex, you're the best. I, I really appreciate it. I'm super excited for you, like first off, but uh, you, you bring a lot of energy, very smart. You've been, you know, putting in the work to get to this point, which that's what it takes and not giving up in the midst of all the chaos out there. So very excited for you. And this is just the beginning, you know, that's, that's the cool part. So it, it's going to be cool to check in in about a year from now to see what you guys have come up with, what you guys are, you know, up to right now. But what does your future look like? Like what kind of goals, plans do you guys have for, for the future? So we're actually a little bit different than most, what you would consider a conventional real estate investor. You know, they want to build this empire and they want to have 50 units and they want to do this. Whereas I'm, I'm more concerned about my time freedom. I would much rather that because we have spent 20 years in the military. We very rarely live in the same time zone, much less the same state as most of our family. So we want that ability to have passive income, to be able to travel, to go visit family. We're big runners. So we like to go travel and do races in various parts of the country when COVID's not a thing. And so we want that ability to be what we call geographical ADD. So if we feel like going here this week, we're going to go here this week. We feel like going there next month, we're going there next month. So we kind of use the, you know, the private lending on the short term is actually generating funds for us to then invest in syndications and multifamily. So we invest in syndications as an LP and we use those funds from kind of our active investing. If you want to look at lending as an active investment, uh, we use our funds from our active investment to then build more of our passive investment. So at some point in the future, you know, yes, we can do private lending from pretty much anywhere. We have a Wi-Fi signal and a cell phone. It's really not as time intensive as some people, you know, might think of. It's a lot of very, there's a lot of work in the very beginning, but then after that, it's kind of on cruise control. And then as long as you maintain contact with your borrowers, but the LP side of it, you know, you're really relying on the operators, you're relying on the property, the market and things like that. And there's not really anybody to check in with, you know, you're just, you get your monthly or quarterly distributions and then you just keep building. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome, Alex. I appreciate you so much. How can people get a hold of you? So I am on LinkedIn and then my company's website is called Infinite Road Investments. And I also run a Facebook group that teaches other people about private lending and passive investing in syndications because I've discovered since I started doing this, there wasn't really any sort of forum for private lenders to get together and talk about how they do this, you know, what's working in their market, what are they doing to mitigate this risk? You know, how are they doing this? How are they structuring this? Because every Facebook group I I tried to find that had private lending or private money in the title, you know, was basically just a spam place for hard money brokers or whatever to just kind of throw their links and their scams, a lot of scammers in there. So I created a community where it's purely educational and the ability to network. So I actually have active investors that have started joining the community because they want to network with these people 
that are private lenders starting that relationship and starting the conversation. And we have daily discussions. We have weekly educational series. We bring in speakers. And it's just an opportunity for investors to come together and actually learn how to approach private lenders, learn how to start private lending, you know, various things, various aspects about it. Um, so that alone has been a really great thing because it, it's kept me motivated to continue to learn and improve. And I get so much pleasure when people come and, you know, send me a message and say, hey, I met my future partner in this group yeah. and we're working on a deal or, you know, hey, I managed to find a private lender to fund my deal and it's great now it's closing and this is going to be my first rental, you know, it's, it's great that even though I don't necessarily have these unlimited funds, as far as capital goes, I can kind of leverage my human capital, you know, my extroverted nature and connect people in a way that's still benefiting them financially, even if I'm not funding their deal. Love that. Make it into win-win for everybody. It, guys, I mean, you guys heard it first right here. You definitely want to reach out to Alex. Uh, you're going to want to be in that group. If you're a real estate investor, this, that's the place to be. Check out her group, connect with her and let her know, you know, how much knowledge that you just took down in, in writing. I got a, a book full of notes right now. So I'm sure you guys have the same thing. If you were listening to this in your car, what you want to do is rewind this. Once you get home, take down some notes. There's plenty of gold nuggets in this one. As always, if you want to get a hold of me, you guys can always do so at on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then if you guys have any credit repair, we can do it for you. That would be at creditrepairmobile.com. Otherwise, just direct message me anywhere. And if you wanted education, learning how to leverage business credit, just like Alex has done, and just getting started, it's awesome. Like it's, I'm so excited for you that you're taking action, not settling for no, or we got to wait till two years, which is, it's crazy. So you guys want to learn the insides and outs, the tips and tricks in between to really be able to set up that foundation properly and get the same type of funding, getting up to a million dollars in business credit within one year, just getting started or, you know, the mass supply, everything else. There, there's tons of tips and tricks that we give out when it comes down to credit in general, the credit hacks behind it. So if you want more information on that, you can find that at Credit Council Elite. So creditcounselelite.com. And with that being said, reach out to us. If you have any questions about the podcast, make sure that you hit that subscribe button so you get the newest notification every single Monday. Leave a review. Let us know what you guys think. And we will see you guys next time. Till next time, guys. Stay blessed. Alex, you're the best. Appreciate you. Thank you. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining.